0: Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense. The habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century, as they were in the 1st century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello, and welcome back to Timeless Leadership, where we're in our second season of exploring principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm Scott Monty. Now, if you aren't yet subscribed to the Timeless and Timely Newsletter, where I regularly write about these topics, please do so at www.timelesstimely.com. And if you haven't yet given us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, I'd appreciate you doing that. It helps other people find the show. And I want to acknowledge something from last season. You may have heard our introduction with the quote from Dolly Parton. Well, last season... I, unfortunately, attributed the quote to John Adams. And in searching on the Internet, I found there are, well, quite frankly, a number of sources for that quote. Some say John Adams. Some say John Quincy Adams. But in doing the research, I found that the most common source for that quote is, in fact, Dolly Parton. So let's give her her due. This week, together, we're exploring Intentionality. In an era when we see so much chaos, where we get swept up in replying to the outrage of the day or follow the cues of the internet mob, it seems almost anathema to talk about control and confidence. Yet living our lives, both personally and professionally, with intention. It means putting more thought into our beliefs and tying our beliefs to our values and then taking action based on those values. Every day I see missed opportunities where brands take actions that are in opposition to or at least not in alignment with their values. Or maybe it's that their stated values just aren't really their values at all. We're at the perfect moment to think and to act more intentionally. If we take the time to look within, explore the context of the world in which we live and work, we can motivate ourselves and others to act with more meaning. David Amerland isn't like most business authors, Originally a chemical engineer who specialized in quantum mechanical perturbations in laminar flow processes, and I dare you to say that three times fast, he then stumbled into the world of search engine optimization, social media marketing, and branding via mathematics. He's written a dozen books on business, marketing, and search, including The Tribe That Discovered Trust and the best-selling Google Semantic Search. David writes for Inc., Forbes, and HP UK, and writes extensively on his blog about business, human behavior, behavioral economics, and social media. And when he's not writing or surfing the web, he spends time giving speeches internationally on how search, social media, and branding are changing. And now he's written intentional, how to live, love, work, and play meaningfully. It's designed to slow us down, help us become more introspective, and make more deliberate decisions that align with our true selves. David, welcome to Timeless Leadership.
1: Scott, it's been brilliant enough meeting up with you after such a long time.
0: Absolutely. Now, where are you coming to us from today?
1: I'm in Greece. I've been here for the last um, couple of years now because of the pandemic. So when flights from Greece to the UK stopped, I was at my summer house and it's sort of become my semi-permanent residence at the moment.
0: Well, that's a rough life, but somebody's got to do it. Right
1: <laughs> yeah, I know you telling me, but yeah. <laughs>
0: So, uh, I want to talk to you about your book, Intentional, How to Live, Love, Work, and Play Meaningfully. And we've been talking this week on, uh, in the newsletter about intentionality. And it it seems like this is a, this is an attribute or a, a characteristic that flows from so many of the other, uh, principles that we talk about here on Timeless Leadership. You know, we've talked about kindness. We've talked about resilience. Can you talk a little bit about um, about what intentionality is, what it means to be intentional?
1: Well, in a sense, it's quite fundamental. It's doing things which actually have a meaning for you, and if they have a meaning for you, then it means they have a value. and if they have a value, then you're able to prioritize them and make them part of your overall direction in life. And this you know this can apply to businesses as well, really so it 's a fairly universal blueprint in how we act, how we behave, why we do things, and what sort of um aim they take us towards
0: that, that's that 's uh, i think an important distinction there and th- this notion of values um, you know we yeah. see so many uh companies now saying yes we are, we are a values led business or we are a purpose driven brand, and we see purpose driven marketing. And to me, it seems like a, another bit of greenwashing, you know, the, this this notion of slapping on a value statement, even when you don't really mean it. And, and as a matter of fact, I just saw a headline this morning from Vox. It's uh-huh. the problem with corporate values. When values are at odds with a company's bottom line, all too often, they won't win out. Yeah, I mean, it's how
1: poignant that is. I mean, it's absolutely right. And, and and what you just said is also right. In many ways, uh, businesses respond to what they perceive the market needs and wants, because that's always worked. We know from study after study that Generation Z is purpose-driven in the way that it actually spends money. So they will work with businesses, they will support businesses that they feel have a purpose. They want to see values behind what businesses do in terms of activity. So there's a response which is perhaps knee-jerk, certainly immediate in how we business actually meets that perceived need. But behind that, there's a whole gamut of activity, a whole lot of issues that have risen, a whole lot of uh, things which we used to do and you have brought him up he said you know perhaps when it comes to the bottom line which is what drives a business because at the end of the day it has to be viable if it's viable it has to make money if it makes money it's profitable and it makes sense to exist so if that's the approach we take which is fairly hard-nosed and and sort of very accountant like then a business is there to respond to whatever and do whatever and say whatever and with you know before you know it we're in Enron country <laughs> So so really, we need to find the happy medium. We know that a business, in order to be viable, has to manage to do something smart. And what is a smart thing it has to do? It has to retain most of its clients, and then it has to find new ones and keep on retaining them, or keep on finding new clients at a lower cost than you found the first ones. So if it does that, it becomes a viable business because it increases the slice of the pie in the market, and it keeps on doing things at a lower cost to what it actually gets in which is how how it becomes profitable. But in order to do that, it has to connect. And we can only connect at a human level. You know, we know advertising doesn't really work. We know that smart messaging doesn't work. We know that marketing messages have a very short lifespan and they're very quickly um, showing up if they're not true. And if anything, they cause further and deeper problems to a business. So essentially, perhaps some businesses are faking it. But in faking it, you know, inevitably they're going to uh, behave in some ways which reflect their messaging. And if that is a persistent type of behavior, it may actually lead to real change.
0: So that's that's interesting to me because on the one hand, you've got inherent values that would drive behavior, but the way you're talking about it, it seems like there can be behaviors that then influence values.
1: Yeah. I mean, let's, let's think, let's think about this for a minute. Let's think, you know, we have a a very strong notion of what it means to be American, American in American culture. And we say there's a, you know, European in a European culture. But at a bio neurochemical level, the two beings are, you know, indistinguishable from each other. Both bleed, both feel hungry, both get tired, both need to sleep, you know, both want some clothes on their back and so on. So what is it actually makes you American and somebody else like me for instance European? And the the easy answer to that is my environment. So if I were to exchange places with you for a month, I would essentially within that month respond to the pressures which the environment imposes upon me and my behavior would essentially become American. And you know, if you take my place, you would become European in your lifestyle, in your approach, you know, you can have a siesta in the afternoon if you're living in Spain or Greece or Italy. You know, you're going to go out late for a cup of coffee in the evening because of the nightlife. And if you didn't do those things, because you can say, I'm American, well, you wouldn't actually integrate. And if you didn't integrate, you would, be feel, you would feel socially excluded. And we are social beings. We want to be included. We want to feel that we're part of a group, a greater whole than us. So culture and activity, or rather behavior, creates culture. Culture drives you know, values and, and which we support values rather.
0: Yeah. And I think this this notion of, of contextuality, hmm. uh, putting ourselves in the context of something and, and observing it, right? I mean, it, it's one thing to just immerse yourself in the culture. It's another thing to actually observe what's going on around you, assimilate in some cases if you're trying to, to fit in. Um, yeah. And, and, and that, that brings me to what you talk about with respect to uh, identity, I thought yes. this was fascinating, the, the three constituents of identity. Can you, can you talk about those three?
1: Well, essentially, part of it comes from our, you know, if we simplify it, you know, in, in, in basic English, right, it's what we want, what we feel we need, our, our own needs. Then it's the perception of the needs of other, the perception of the, of, our, of the people around us and how they see us. And then the expectations of what we do and the impact those things have. And, you know, if we think about a school playground, for instance, you know, there's a a tabula rosa. A child goes into the school playground, intermixes with others, and suddenly we begin to see its own self and personality because he wants to do things. He wants to grab that toy. He wants to push that boy. He wants to pull somebody's hair. But then he also wants to be accepted. And also he thinks, he begins to realize there's an expected norm of behavior. And I think we can—we are seeing and playing out in real life now one of the largest social experiments ever with COVID. Essentially, in the past, we couldn't socially exclude anybody to see how social exclusion would actually affect somebody's behavior. But we can see that with COVID, you know, we've been isolated for a year, some of us more than that. So we come out of that and suddenly we don't know how to behave. We don't know how to, to be socially adapt with people we don't know what is safe to say we feel anxiety which we can't really manage so our um some of our behavior is a little bit out of kilter we externalize aggression when we shouldn't we overreact when we shouldn't so you know these are things which happen because you can say that we are broken a little bit because we've missed out that element of socialization so our identity in a sense has been affected we don't know now how to fit in the world, because the world has changed.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's that's profound when you think about that. And, you know, it, it's funny, um, even before the pandemic, you know, mm. you, you mentioned that having this view of self and, and going back to the ancient philosophers, you know, it's written in stone, know thyself. That's right. And yet it seems to me that I, I question whether people really know themselves if they take the time to truly understand themselves to be introspective right when we're so distracted by so many of these external things around us whether it's uh you know uh buying an nft or getting text message updates or scrolling through uh, uh tiktok what do you think we're missing when it comes to knowing ourselves
1: we fail to understand where the world ends and we begin. And and there's a good reason for that. Now, we don't think with our own brain, although that's the tool we use to think with. We think with the world. The world constantly puts in, inside us a stimuli. That stimuli goes into ideas and thoughts and conceptions and trends and fads and fashion. They become our talking points. They become our living points. For some of us, they become our life completely. And for many of us, even if we don't take that to a great degree, we allow those things to influence us. So we can quite happily behave in ways that are acceptable because everybody behaves in that way. We can dress in ways that are acceptable. We can talk in ways that are acceptable. And none of those things are actually internal. They've been, they're been they external. I came in and we just regurgitate them. So, (laughs) when it comes to knowing ourselves really, truly, in a way, we have to sort of draw a line and say, where does the distinction start? Where do I begin and where does the world end? And that's difficult because suddenly you may feel alone, lonely, uh, sort of um, having taken the wrong path, feeling that you failed. All these things, all this negativity comes up. You know, the moment we're alone, we have to deal with that. It's easier not to have to. So we can distract ourselves. And, you know, the, the distractions which you mentioned earlier are part of that, and a lot of people employ them. But when it comes to actually learning what to do now when nobody can actually guide you, well, that can only come from you. It can only come from your values. It can only come from what you truly want. And in order to understand that, you have to know truly who you are, which is, you know, the, the ancient saying of know thyself. Yeah. How hard is that?
0: It it really is. I mean, it takes some effort. And, and quite frankly, there may be times when we look at ourselves and we don't like what we see. And <laughs> yes. that's a difficult truth to swallow for a lot of people. And, is, you know, you see, yeah. I'm sorry,
1: it is absolutely, absolutely. And we, 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 we are very good. We're at very, we're incredibly good at lying to others and lying to ourselves and you think okay if we value truth so much because we can all logically agree that truth is a great virtue and we should all support it how come we're so adept at lying and the reason for that is because we you know it's a survival mechanism
0: mm.
1: you know if you lie to yourself in an environment that's essentially hostile around you it diminishes the internal struggle that you feel and that allows you to basically survive so you know if I come you know we're, we're talking about you know, 20, 30, 50, 60,000 years ago and perhaps longer. But if we take that into a modern environment where you come into a company where nobody likes you, well, you can say to yourself, you know, I'm the best, that's why they don't like me. And you may not be, right? But that creates a narrative inside your head which allows you to rise to the occasion, deflect all the things which distract you, and actually do your job to the best of your ability. Or you can say, you know, I'm special, (laughs) in whatever, you know, whatever meaning of the word you attach to that. You can say that, you know, they are the people who are wrong, not you. So then you don't have to actually examine what you're doing and you can carry on. And this survival mechanism works until it doesn't, right? So there
0: you go. Yeah, simply stated but profound. It works until it doesn't. Um, and, And yet, you know, now we're at a point where there's so much personal anger, and there are people who are holding on you know almost white knuckled um mm-hmm. in terms of uh, uh not being vaccinated and again this yes. is you know perceiving what other people think of you uh the the benefit or the harm you're doing to the world um they they seem to be fighting tooth and nail against doing simply what would seem to be, for a lot of people, the right thing to do. Yeah. Why do you think we're having this, this big public debate about science when the facts are very clear? It's a old
1: struggle against logic and emotion. Now, we have been, in the 20th century, for most of the 20th century, we were conditioned to believe that emotion was wrong, and actually made the word emotional sound almost like an insult, And logic was everything. And if you want to succeed in life, succeed in business, you had to be ultra logical, almost like uh, Mr. Spock, who had his emotions under complete control. And you had to sort of ignore anything that happens to you. Now, what do we know today? We know that essentially everything which we do is emotional because emotion creates a motivation. And then we apply logic to explain it. And in that, we also tie in part of our belief system, which becomes part of our identity. So if I have a particular belief, and that belief comes from my own worldview. So suppose, for instance, that I grew up in a small town in, you know, let's not make it America. Let's go to a small town in Australia. I haven't been out of my town. You know, I'm quite happy here. And then the pandemic happens. My entire worldview consists of my friends and and my colleagues and the people around me. And then some scientist says, you know, science works. I know know it works theoretically and tells you to muzzle up, put a a mask over your face and a vaccine in your arm. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm trying to process this, but I can't because I don't usually do that. So what does my brain do? It goes back to the past because the safe space, which I know. And in the past, nobody told me to put a mask on and nobody told me to vaccinate myself. And I'm thinking, okay, that's what I really want to go to. And I know it's illogical, but I'm not thinking about it. My emotions drive me there. So the moment you say, listen, David, this is what you've got to do. I see it as an attack on my identity. So then my emotional response is to attack you back and say, you know, go entirely the opposite direction, thinking, you know, let's go back to the past, which is impossible because it's a safe space and that's how I'm going to behave. And if my friends do the same around me, there you go. Suddenly, I have a group which reinforces my belief system, and then it's me against you. We see the same thing with pandemic, you know. And, and we know historically that in the 1918 pandemic, we, which was the Spanish flu essentially, we had the same situation, and it was a lot, a lot more. Uh, sort of, a mortality rate was a lot higher. People would get sick in the morning, and by lunchtime, they drop dead. And you'd be able to see that. And still there were people saying, no, I'm not going to wear a mask. No, I'm not going to you know, stay away from other people and so on. So it's understandable as a mechanism because it's how we operate. This is where we need to be smart as a species. And sometimes we fail at that.
0: <laughs> I mean, you think about how far we've come in 100 years <sighs> medically and scientifically. Uh, and yet, you know, with history, it seems like, you know, science always builds on itself. Right, you, yes. you you make progress because of the the giants that came before you. you stand on their shoulders, like uh, Sir Isaac yeah. Newton said he did. Uh, and yet, when it comes to history, we, we seem to constantly forget leaders yeah. of the past, lessons of the past, and we seem to be reliving history every generation or so as we completely forget about some of these valuable yeah. lessons.
1: Constantly, you're yeah, so right. And and the question here is, you know, science essentially builds on the knowledge of the past because that's its system of governance, that's the only way to operate within that framework. How do we operate socially? How do we encode knowledge, memories, lessons learned? And the way we do it as as a society, as a culture, is through tradition. So we have some kind of tradition which happens, and that guides behavior, and that has a kind of logic. But as time passes, we lose sight of that, and the tradition itself is what actually stays Sometimes we keep it and sometimes we don't. And that's how we lose track of the lessons we've learned.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that you really hone in on in in your book uh, with regard to this and keeping traditions alive, keeping people engaged and excited about these things is storytelling. Right. Yes, Humans absolutely. are yes. creatures that love stories and they really have an impact on the memory. And this is where we get into some of the kind of the uh, the neurological aspects of being intentional. Can you Talk a little bit about stories and memory and how that infect, uh, affects our intentions.
1: Well, if we think that what we do always has some kind of intent, some kind of meaning, some kind of aim, then we need to understand why. And the why comes from an innate sometimes understanding of who we are. Who we are comes from a narrative we constantly create for ourselves. Now our brain creates a narrative in order to uh, sort of thread together everything that happens, everything that we know, everything that it collects, in a sense-making kind of pattern. So if we say to ourselves, you you know, you go through your day, you don't say, well, you know, this is one data point, I did this, and there's another data point, I did that. There's another data point, I did that. If you were to tell that to somebody, you'll say, I was tired and I was late and I thought I wouldn't make it. So, you know, you begin to dramatize it. But, you know, I saw the train and I put on last print. Would you believe I just made it to the door? You know, I just squeezed in, wiped my brow from sweat. You know, these are details you see in a cinematic sort of situation. But we embellish that because there's a value behind it, which has an emotional load which feeds into our sense of who we are and what we achieve within that relatively meaningless thread I just recounted. So, you know, that's how we create narratives. Now, narratives are important. If we forget the narratives we share socially and it's happened, you know, this is, you know, in the modern world will have fragmentation of social groups and fragmentation in part of the social fabric. And then you begin to see cracks. So the, the narratives begin to fall apart a little bit. The traditions remain. We don't always rem- know the value behind them or the meaning behind them. And we tend to lose knowledge in that way that was shared in the past. And if we think um, a tribal setting, for instance... In a tribal setting, we have, you know, let's go, you know, let's go stereotypes, right? We have the young bloods, you know, they're out there ready to hunt. We have the middle guys, they're the ones who are in position of power. We have the elders of the tribe, they the you know, the the embodiment of wisdom basically. So if you want to know something, you're gonna to go to them. So if the young bloods say, you know, tribe across the way, you know, through rocks at us, let's go and kill them all and take their horses. And the people in the middle will say, you know, if we do that, then we won't be able to trade. We won't be able to sort of uh, join together and fight off the bigger tribes. So maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should just go and ask them why, you know, this happened. Let's go to the elders. And the elders will say, you know, this has happened before. You know, (laughs) there's some hotheads over there. Let's go and talk to them and make sure they're under control. And, you know, that's how you sort of get together, get along, right? We've lost that. We don't have that anymore. We have a culture that pretty much fetishizes eternal youth. We don't know what to do with the elders. We don't know how to encase, to encode um, the lessons of the past so they're accessible to us. We resent the idea of a tribe because we think it's too cliché and sort of claustrophobic and too old-fashioned. We haven't put anything in its place, and we have lost the community values of the 20th century that kept us together. So this is the challenge we're facing in a nutshell.
0: Is, is there a way out of it?
1: well there is and it's and essentially it is really really simple you know we all feel the need to connect we all feel the need to to see each other as a person and say you know i see you i understand you we feel that at a really deep level we are afraid you know i'm afraid to open up to you because i think you know i'll, I'll appear weak and you're going to take advantage of it and you're the same and until we begin to sort of find some way of connecting sharing a safe middle ground that allows the connection to grow, then you know we are sort of doomed to stay at opposite ends. Mm. But that you know that solution, simple as it may be, is very powerful, but it's difficult to implement.
0: In some ways, it seems to me that what we've experienced over the last couple of years through the pandemic is we've—I um, don't—I don't, I don't want to say fetishized or celebrated, but we have acknowledged vulnerability we have acknowledged that there are people that are struggling at home when they've had to work remotely juggling families and uh spouses and partners and work responsibilities and all the rest that seem to be invisible when we were working before the pandemic and suddenly it's it's all before us on every zoom screen
1: that's right i mean the, the facade has fallen right it dropped off and it dropped off because the pandemic stripped it away So you see, okay, what are you doing? You're a CEO, you're running a model, you know, a global corporation, but you're still living with your dog and your wife and your kids. (laughs) So that makes you human. And in that, we found strength. So that allowed us to become resilient when we should have fallen apart. And it shows promise of what we can actually do. You know, if we work like this, literally, there's nothing we can't do.
0: Mm.
1: We just need to consciously now, intentionally, if you like, begin to operate in that fashion.
0: Yeah. And so much of what we knew and what we expected and what we counted on previously was simply stripped away with the pandemic, yeah. these new norms, if if yeah. I can. I mean, there is no normal anymore. It's no, just no. The, the way we do things now. Um, and what, what interests me is you, you, you open your book by saying uh, intentional is a game plan. And I wonder... Is it possible to have a plan when so much around us is uncertain? How how do those fit together?
1: Well, great question, and this is fabulous. And, you know, it, it comes right onto the heart of the uncertainty we all feel, which the pandemic has magnified. Now, let's be clear here. The uncertainty has always been there. Nothing has ever been certain. However... Trying to deal with that, we were very good at putting together multifaceted sort of approaches and layers, which created a sort of a semblance of security. So you were pretty confident, you know, you're going to go to work the next day. The building wasn't going to come crashing down because planes didn't crash into it. You know, you can see how, you know, these things were there. And then things started happening, you know, beginning with the year 2000, which began to shake our world. The uncertainty levels begin to go up and up and up and up. And now we are in a place where all we feel is the uncertainty and we can't really find a way to navigate it. Well, we have always had that. You know, first people to come out of the caves must have felt hugely uncertain, unimaginably fearful. And all they had was each other, you know, a group of people. Against the world, and they didn't even know how it worked. There was no science to tell them. There was no social media to connect them with other tribes. All they could feel was that they didn't have teeth, they didn't have big muscles, or you know they couldn't run very fast. Anything could eat them, and they had to bend together as a group. And they did it. And through that connection, you know, when we connect with each other, it doesn't matter how afraid we are, we begin to feel a certain amount of certainty because there's somebody else there. And we know neurobiologically there's a response in our brain. You know, the centers of the brain which control how we feel in terms of fear and panic and stress begin to um, become, to, to be dialed down. And the centers of the brain which process the higher thought processes begin to kick in. So basically then we begin to form a plan for our next step. And here comes the, the the whole point of all this. The brain is there to do one thing only. It's there to help us survive. And then it, to do that, it only has one function. It tries to predict the next possible moment. So if we can do that, then there's a game plan. It allows us to survive. And you say, well, how do we do that? Do we have a crystal ball? And no, we don't. But what do we have? We have Empathy. Which allows us to connect to somebody, understand how they feel, understand their motivation, reasonably predict their next step, their behavior, which then allows us to trust them. And if we trust them to vary, in varying degrees, then we can work together. And if we work together, we we'll begin to build things. <laughs> so essentially, you know, the whole complexity we see about us comes from very simple sort of functions in our brain.
0: And all of this happens in split seconds without us even realizing it. I mean, it, it's really baked into the deepest portions of our brains.
1: Absolutely. And and the magic of it is that, you know, once we experience something, you know, you know, we have your electrodes in our skulls and we can see how all the little centers light up and we can get fMRI images of the brain thinking. But once we experience it a couple of times and it becomes ingrained behavior, then all those things don't happen. The brain appears to be inert. So you think you know how, how did that happen? It's almost like we codify schemas which kick in immediately, yeah. save a lot of time, and guide us.
0: That's astounding. That's really astounding. And and with this um, perceived sense of control or knowing what we can. Tr- can control in an uncertain environment, with that comes confidence. And yes. uh, I want to make the bridge here uh, from control to confidence to happiness, which is uh, a, a really interesting element for me. And I want to read a quote from your book. It says, confidence in turn contributes significantly to our sense of control over our life. A sense of control is what allows us to critically examine and adjust our beliefs, hold firm to our core values, develop the right kind of attitude, and display grit when we need it. So it seems to me that that confidence, whether it is this supreme sense of self-confidence, whether it is a confidence uh, inspired in us by how others treat us, uh, that this gives us uh, a, a firmer grasp on who we are and what we do and why we do it.
1: Yes, it brings alignment in many ways. In many ways, you know, if we don't have confidence in our abilities or in our capabilities or in the world around us or in our predictions or in our thinking – we are not. We are in constant sort of um, cognitive dissonance. We're fighting against ourselves. We're fighting against that little negative voice in our head that says, "You know, cross the road now. No, don't do it. It's going. The car is going too fast. No, no, no. no, go now 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 no. Don't go until you get tired and you make the mistake and you try to cross the road when a fast car is way too close for you to avoid." Okay, so so it's a lot easier if you have if you're confident in your estimation. Of how things are going to happen in which case then you can cross the road safely right Mm. you can see the car is really far away maybe going fast but the road is not very wide and you're fairly capable of sort of taking 10 steps very quickly without falling over so as we calculate all all those things you know we get across the road we have achieved our goal and we're fairly happy because we survived the crossing of the road
0: I mean, it's it's true. I mean, I see this in uh, our, our youngest child who's uh, seven, you know, she's uh, very uh, hesitant to do certain things for the first time. And even after going through the, the rigor of, of doing that thing, even though she didn't want to, uh, suddenly she's comfortable. Right, and yeah. it's a, it's a microcosm of all of these yeah. challenges we face in life, whether it's uh, moving or uh, starting a new relationship or ending a relationship, uh, finding a new place to live, etc. Um, th- there's a lot of things that we perceive to be uh, really challenging, and yet once we do them, we either realize it wasn't that big of a deal, or we understand, okay, well, this is the pattern I have to follow in order to be successful.
1: Yes, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought children up because they are the perfect experiment. You know, as a parent, you see them grow up, you know, that you know, as soon as they're like three or four, their brain is almost as complex as ours in terms of the centers it has. It doesn't have the networks yet because, you know, the lessons haven't been learned. But what it really doesn't have are two critical components. It doesn't have experiences and doesn't have memories and knowledge. And it's those things actually that make the brain you know, function the way it's it's supposed to in an adult, which makes us, you know, responsible and capable. So watching children grow up and seeing how they actually learn about the world and their place in it, and then they get a sense of who they are in that kind of construct. That's amazing. It's, you know, it's a magical experience.
0: It is. It is. And, you know, the wonder of children is, uh, you get to experience joy through them, unbridled joy, uh, it's whether it's them doing something for a first time or responding to something. And, and it's, it's almost happiness by association, right?
1: It is. And I'm calling for that time because, you know, essentially emotions are contagious. You know, if we're in a room and people start feeling afraid. Now, before anybody says, oh, I'm afraid, or anybody screams, we are all going to die, we pick up body language, perhaps high-pitched voices, sharp breathing. Um, There's some evidence that we pick up pheromones by smell and the fear response. That activates our own response, which is why panic, for instance, can spread so quickly in a crowded room. People panic, then they lose control of their emotions. They can't think critically. But joy is also contagious. You know, we go in a party, somebody starts smiling or laughing or dancing and suddenly we we chill as well, right? We think, oh, this is not a bad place. And now why do we chill when somebody dances like that without caring or somebody laughs without with abandon? Because we think at, at the deep part of our body, of our brain, we think, well, there's no threat here. You know, people relax. If there's no threat, I can lower my guard, I can absorb more of the scenery, I can trust them, at least not to kill me. So energetically now, well, you know the things which were guarding us are released, all those resources, and we pour our attention into enjoying the moment, mm. and that allows us to actually connect with people because they sense we're more open, and they open up in response, and they reciprocate, and suddenly you think, wasn't oh, that an amazing party? <laughs>
0: Yeah, so, so and, and I think some of the some of the best experiences like that is when you go in uh, without expectations. You know, we we are so fixated on happiness as a society. Uh, everyone wants to attain happiness, like like it's some mountaintop to, uh, to 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 scale. And and you make a great point that happiness is. It's a process. It's an experience. Yeah. It's a journey. It's it's not the attainment. It, it's the process uh, by which you go through it.
1: Exactly. And and I think you know you made such again such a deep point here. Again, we've been conditioned to think you know we have a right to be happy, which is great because everybody should have that right. And then we think in order to attain happiness, we need this or that, or we need to be there. And it's always disappointing because our expectations are always higher. Because we expect the moment we I don't know, buy the the car, buy the house, go on a holiday, we expect to be happy magically. And no, it's not going to be that because you know, I mean the very process of all that is fairly you know, sometimes it's got it's you know, it has its own issues and troubles and worries and you know, can we afford this? Can we get it? You know, what's the after sales service like? Or do I really need it? How are people going to perceive me? We think all these things, we're constantly comparing data points of happiness, or expectations, or perceptions. The moment we stop doing all that, we go and, you know, sit in the, by the, on, at the beach, stupidly watching the sun go down, you know, very primal thing, and suddenly you feel very happy watching that, right? It doesn't cost anything. It's not amazing. It's not in Technicolor. There's no special effects. And you're not doing anything active. You're just watching it and absorbing it and feeling yourself in the moment. And it's primal. And it's primal because we are geared to respond to these processes. Mm. Same thing with two friends sharing a drink or, you know, reminiscing about the past, two boyhood friends perhaps. You know, you you think, you know, that simple connection, what does it make us happy? It, you know, it's that process that raises the level of awareness inside us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and ultimately, uh, as we each reach the end of our days, um, all we have left is the people around us, the people that we care about, that care for us, the relationships that we've built. It seems like that's where uh, the ultimate happiness lies in forging relationships with others.
1: Yes. I mean, we've, we've um, there is such a thing as a happiness index, and uh, I think it's fairly recent. It's only about 10 years old. Um, And it it goes through different countries, different sort of demographics, different economic and um, social backgrounds, and obviously different geographies. And time and again, we see that the countries which are most advanced, we expect people to have almost everything, and potentially they can have almost everything, are the least happy ones. You've got to say, you know, why is this happening? And the reason it's happening is because we haven't yet got the right balance. Okay, I mean, the poorer countries towards the bottom of the table, they're also equally unhappy because, you know, they struggle to have things which they can't have and they want them. And, you know, there's comparison again, comparison points. So basically, it comes down to balance. And, you know, we begin to sound almost mystical here. We're looking for some kind of Zen. But at the end of the day, it's what he said, right? We all know logically that we're going to end one day, we're going to die. And that's it, right? Whatever happens afterwards is not really our expertise to definitely talk about. We can only, you know, hope with that through whatever belief system we use. So really what we really know is what we live. And if our life doesn't actually balance properly, it is highly unlikely that we will feel happy. So, you know, if you use just a few metrics to say, you know, this is what I've done in my life. I've, you know, I've built buildings or I've accumulated money or I've built businesses and sold them or kept them or grew them or whatever. Okay, what else have you done? Nothing. Is that enough? Well, no, it doesn't really fulfill us. But if you say, you know, I've got these friends and they've always been by me, then you say, ah. Oh, doesn't make a difference. Well, we know, again, scientifically, that it does. And how do we know it? There are blue zones across the world. Uh, Sardinia, there's uh, one, Ikaria, in Greece. There are places in the world where people seem to live forever,
0: <laughs> pretty much. I begin <laughs> to see why you're in Greece.
1: And they study <laughs> these blue zones. They study the lifestyle. They study you know, different cultures. So, you know, some in Japan, uh, some in the lower islands of Okinawa. And they think, you know, how do these people live so long? How do they not have health problems? Do they exercise more than anybody else? Well, the answer is no. Do they have a special diet? Well, they don't have a diet which is high in processed foods, but it's not particularly special. And from blue zone to blue zone, it varies with the culture. So what is the common thread in all these in all these areas? Do they not have stress in their life? Actually, they do. They, a lot of them have enough material possessions. A lot of them have a lot of challenges in their lives, either personal or uh, sort of global in their particular environment and they're challenged by them so they have stress but what they all have in common is a sense of community of thre- of friends which are there to support you and that support network seems to make all the difference because we know that it lowers the stress which you naturally feel it leads to a physical lowering of inflammation in the body and just that alone and there are other factors to that is enough to actually extend your lifespan <laughs>
0: I I love that. And, and look, when you're, when you're focusing on your community, when you're focusing on relationships, all of those things take an effort. I mean, this isn't, yes. this isn't a completely stress-free environment. Like you said, you, you do have to put in the work. You have to be intentional uh, with how you approach these things. I, th- I think it makes great sense. And you know, I think in some ways, particularly in the United States, we're cursed by the rights that we uh, were granted under Thomas Jefferson's wonderful document, the Declaration of Independence. He says uh, all all Americans are uh, have the right to uh, the inalienable rights of life, liberty. And the pursuit of happiness. And, that, and yes. that's interesting too. He says, the pursuit of happiness. Yes. You don't have the right to yes. be happy, right? You have the right, right to pursue happiness.
1: Exactly. I think it's a process, right? I mean, and he, I think, I mean, I frequently read that document. And I'm thinking, how did these people come up with a kind of vision back then? Okay? And it humbles me, right? Whatever sense we have of ourselves as the pinnacle of our civilization should be humbled just by reading that. Because it is so fundamentally human and it has so many truths that you realize there's a lot of thinking that went, went into it. And they were able to actually process these thoughts at a really deep introspective level and then generalize them to a population that, you know, was burgeoning at the time. So... You know these are these are things we need to sort of keep in mind always
0: and, and we think about it now, I mean life, okay, obviously that's a human right, <laughs> liberty, yes, we all have the right to be free. Why do you think Jefferson chose the pursuit of happiness as the third leg of that stool when he could have chosen something else? I mean where do you see the the thinking well, behind I, that?
1: I think um, and I'm speculating here, obviously, but I think if you're building a society and you want to provide a society with a rule that will help guide it, irrespective of the scale and size that it's going to reach in the future, you need to give it a process that will help it achieve balance, but maintain ambition. And, you know, that's why I find it magical. You know, it's magical words, magical concepts, enshrined in a document that's so old now. And we think, you know, Wow, it takes your breath away. And, and that's what it is. I mean, if we're creating a society today, you and I get together, you know, we have Wikipedia at our disposal, the whole internet at our fingertips. Would we come up with anything as smart or,
0: or wise or deep? I, mean, I, I personally doubt it. No, and I'll tell you, when Jefferson was writing that document, and, and John Adams uh, had responsibility for it, he said, no, you're the better writer, you should handle this. Jefferson was in a a, a two-room flat in Philadelphia. He didn't have his library with him, you know, and, and this is, this is the guy whose library, his personal library went on to be the basis of, uh, the library of Congress in, in the United States. He was so well read and yet Mm. he didn't have those at his fingertips, but he absorbed it. He, He absorbed it. He, he believed it. He, he had the values that really drove the formation of that document.
1: Yes. And, and you, you know, I suspect and you suspect that he also had a very strong sense of self, who he wants, what he wanted. and And that's what gives us the certainty to do things, to say things with confidence that will reverberate into the future, which we can't even imagine, right? I mean, he can't possibly imagine our world. And yet his words are so pertinent today to all of us. So...
0: Now, of course, we have to put a huge asterisk next to this, that he was a slave owner, too, at the same (laughs) time (laughs) he was espousing liberty. That's a whole discussion for uh, another show uh, Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think here's the thing.
1: None of us ever are perfect, and all of us more or less are the product of our environment. So, you know, we judge him by today's standards, and he was living in that world then. Okay, it's like saying you know Spartans were cold-blooded killers. Well, yeah, they were, right? But they had to survive. Or you know, the Japanese samurai. what's the documentary of on, on Japanese culture. You know, they were completely transactional. They'd be fighting by your side today, but you're losing, so they switch sides and fight against you. You think, how can you do that? But that was the culture. So then, there you go.
0: Well, in some ways, we're all a, a victim of our surroundings
1: yes absolutely which, which comes back to the you know the original sort of opening points about identity and environment, and you know if we switched sort of places, you know I'd become very American for a while and you'd become very European, I'd, possibly uh, even Greek <laughs> yes. I'd be willing to try that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, uh, David Amerlin, thank you so much for spending this time talking with us intentionally about Intentional, how to live, love, work and play meaningfully. You can find more about the book and David at davidamerlin.com and via all of the links that we have in the show notes.
1: Thank you so much, It's been brilliant.
0: Being intentional means you have a deep understanding of your beliefs and values and also of the changing world around you. When we successfully blend all of these, we find ourselves living more meaningful lives. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, for you are a leader.